Okay, so every year, a buddy of mine, his family used to have this blowout Seder. The wine was flowing, my buddy's dad, he held court, teaching everyone who didn't know, like me, what the various Jewish traditions were. We sang, lit candles. And in the course of the merriment, I started talking to this beautiful lady sitting next to me. It was one of those things where everyone else in the room, they just disappeared. And we talked, and we really talked. And leaving the house, I was like, wow. And I called her the next day, and we had a picnic at this tree park in Ann Arbor. And easy like a Sunday morning, it was on. No stress, no games. On our second date, she made me soup, this delicious matzo ball soup. What could be better? And Deny it if you want to, but when you first go out with someone, you can't help but wonder, is this the one? We planned to meet at the Asian Art Museum, and I read a book as I waited for it. I was feeling giddy and lucky and happy and excited. And I see her walking towards me, and her face is flushed, and she's angry. And I'm like, baby, what's the matter? You're not Jewish. Jewish? I'm supposed to be Jewish. The black Jew is a very small minority in Michigan. You knew all the songs at Seder. I was just mumbling along. You knew how to light the candle. Someone handed me a candle. Uh, uh, We can't do this anymore. Why not? This is cool. This is good between me and you. And she says, when I make matzo ball soup, I want it to touch the chord of generations past These songs, these songs are not trivial to me. I need them to be part of the fiber of my partner. And I'm like, look, if it's important to you, it's important to me. And what she said next, it felt like it dropped out of the clear blue sky. She said, I'm sorry. I just don't see any way around this. And she walked away. And I stood there, feeling like someone had punched me in the gut and then punched me again. I walked home. I waited. I waited. I don't even know what I was waiting for. But later that night, I heard a knock. And I ran. I opened up the door. And there was no one there. I went to close the door. But before I did, on the stoop, I see this steaming hot bowl of matzo ball soup. See, love can be complicated, snappers. They say, if you love someone, set them free. But for the life of me, I could never figure out why anyone would want to do that. Today on Snap Judgment, from PRX and NPR, we proudly present Sugar and Spice. Amazing stories about the most mysterious force of all, and don't worry. Almost all these stories have happy endings, almost. Just wait and see. My name is Glenn Washington, and this is Snap Judgment. get it started right, Snappers, with a story from that other city by the bay. And get your mind right. If someone asks if they can just crash on your couch for a few days, always say yes. I hadn't seen him since graduation, and I remember telling my roommate, do you remember that weird guy, Derek? He's going to come visit. He was a theater major, and so he was a little eccentric. He came up to San Francisco for the weekend, and I just, I had the best time. I was starting to really, really fall for him. But he lived in New York, and I lived in San Francisco. 
I don't remember how it came up, but I hadn't known about his heart condition. Apparently, he had his first heart attack our sophomore year. They didn't really know what to make of it because most 20-year-olds don't have heart attacks. They did a bunch of tests, and they couldn't figure out why it had happened. And so he kept having heart attacks. So he was telling me all about this, and it was very surreal getting to know someone a second time. We started talking on the phone all the time. I just couldn't get this guy out of my head. So I decided to fly out to New York for Valentine's Day, spend a long weekend out there. He had told me that he had a surprise for me that had something to do with me flying out. He said, call me when you get to the airport. So I called him and he said, well, when you get through security, go to your right and go sit down at the bar. And so I did. And he was sitting there and he had flown out from New York just to fly back with me because I am such a nervous flyer and he wanted to hold my hand. He went all out, took me out to an amazing restaurant. We went to this jazz club called Birdland, which was really, really strange because I had always said that my dream date was going to a jazz club. And I was pretty much butt crazy in love with him by that point. I was there for three days and I got back on the plane to go back to San Francisco. And by the time I landed, I had made the decision to move to New York. It was my last night in San Francisco, and I was eating dinner with a couple of friends and my mom, and my phone rang, and I saw it was Derek. Sorry, <laughs> this was really hard. Uh, it's okay. It was Derek, and he was in the ambulance, and he had had a heart attack, and he asked me to call his dad to let him know what was going on. So I flew out the next day, and I saw him. He had four IVs, two in each arm. I'm deathly, deathly afraid of needles. I went to go give him a hug and I could just, I could feel the IVs on my back. He had a troponin level of 117 and troponin is a biomarker and it, it basically indicates levels of cardiac damage. Anything over 10 is considered life-threatening and him having a troponin level of 117 was terrifying. After about 48 hours, the doctor came in and they said, we don't know what's wrong with you. We have to send you home and send him home with ibuprofen. To me, just was absolutely just <laughs> absurd. After that, he kept having really, really bad chest pain um, on an almost daily basis to the point where a lot of times he couldn't get off the couch. We just had to hold his hand while he was just in so much pain and it was really, really hard to see the person that I loved be in that much pain and not be able to do anything. Derek had given up hope. I kind of just started this journey with him and he was at his mind, I think, at the end. You know, pretty much any day could have been his last day, but it, it never even occurred to me to not move to New York or not stay or not love him because I just didn't know how to not do that. And so I was going to fight tooth and nail doctors and nurses and the whole medical profession, I didn't care. I had met this amazing person that made me feel so happy. I, I couldn't accept that that wasn't my forever. So I spent a lot of time reading medical journals. I would type in his symptoms online and I would read anything and everything that I could come across. And I'd have a medical journal in one window and then I'd have a medical dictionary in another window because I didn't understand about 90% of what I was reading. I would drag him to doctor's appointments. I would force him to read the things that I had found and I started contacting doctors. I was sending out all these emails and I was trying to sound as official and, and medically knowledgeable as I could possibly be. I knew it was working because one doctor actually replied back and referred to me as Dr. McNair. So, and actually the doctor that wrote me back was Dr. Bernard Meisch in Germany. He uh, had done a lot of research on a virus called Parvo B19. And so he suggested that we get him tested for this Parvo. And they did a biopsy of his heart. We got a phone call from his doctor saying, well, you have parvo. That's the good news. We have a diagnosis. The bad news is, is there's no treatment. So I 
once again decided that that was unacceptable. So I went back to the doctor in Germany and he said, well, I've been doing this experimental treatment with some patients here in Germany because about 50% of the population gets exposed to this virus. They build up immunity to it. And so the idea was that if you could get the antibodies into his blood, that his body would start fighting this virus. So it was actually supposed to be a one-day treatment, but they ended up having to do it for over three or four days. Derek's fever went up to 104 because his body was really trying to fight this infusion. It was, you know, it was one of those things where they basically told us that we wouldn't know if it worked until he didn't have another heart attack. It, was, it really turned into a wait-and-see game. So we got engaged. I remember my mom at one point asking me what happens if he doesn't make it to the wedding. And I said, I don't know. It doesn't matter. So we started planning our wedding, and he kept going in for blood tests, and we started seeing the troponin level dropping. And I started thinking, what if it had actually worked? Um, it took about, I'd say, five to six months afterwards. Hold on a second. My wife is shaking her head. No. This is my side of the story, <laughs> not your side of the story. You already gave your side of the story. Okay, but you're just wrong, but that's fine. All right. Five to six months in, I kind of lapsed on taking my Vicodin. I probably shouldn't have, but I did, and the pain didn't come back. I still didn't believe it. It's too hard. It's too hard to get my hopes up, and I was just waiting for it to come back, almost like the worst old friend. It had just been around for so long, but I'm okay. I haven't had a heart attack in over two years now. I run five to eight miles a day. I can make plans for the future now, and I couldn't before. I have pain sometimes, but the pain now is my heart repairing itself. It was hard to thank her because I had to admit that it wasn't going to come back. And I had to kind of let go of that fear because she had worked so hard. Here we go. Um, Emma, I just wanted to say thank you. You pushed when I couldn't. Had the strength when I didn't have it. I'm okay now. And it's because of you. So thank you. I love you. You're my funny face. You don't have to say thank you because I get you. That is my thanks. And the future I have with you is my thank you. And the children I'm going to have with you is my thank you. And I didn't have any other choice because I love you. And you can stop crying now. <laughs> it's okay. Stay healthy, brother. And go ahead. Nobody's looking. Go ahead, wipe that tear away. Derek's going to be all right. Much love to Emma and Derek for sharing their story with Snap. It was produced by Stephanie Fu and Jamie DeWolf. Now, there's been some consternation in the ranks, some confusion and dismay. I've got a letter right here, and it says... Dear Snap Judgment, y'all ain't rocked it old school in a long time. What is up? Sign player. Well, all right, player. It would not be right. You are correct. It would not be proper to talk about the magic of love without bringing an elder to the microphone. Youngsters, get your pens and paper ready so you can take some notes. The professor, El Abdul Kenyatta, has arrived. I'm what they call an OG. A lot of people say OG stands for original gangster. But I got a son who's 45 years old and he has nine children, so OG also stands for old grandfather. I remember when all this hip-hop and rap stuff first got started. I remember my son coming up to me and he was like, yo, Pops, Pops, you got to hear this. This is the latest. You got to check this music out. This is rap. I was like, yo, son, you know, I'm not really with a lot of that stuff. I mean, you know, there's certain words that I don't even allow in my house. 
You know, he's like, what words are those, Pop? I said, come on, you know what they are. He was like, oh, Pops, Pops. I mean, come on, Pops. This is rap. This is R.A.P. This is revolutionary African poetry. I was like, yo, son, check this. You know, when I was your age, rap was spelled W-R-A-P. And back in the day, rap was the mechanism that we used to catch women with. That's how we used to wrap them in the eloquence of our charm and our words. I mean, how do you think I caught your mama? See, I was standing on the corner of Dewey Square, having made some arrangements to meet my partners there. I was high and fly and rapping very bold. From the corner of my eye, I did spy moving with a sexy stride, this bold, cold mama. I mean, she was pretty and trim. Believe me, Jim, she knew she was looking fine. With a smile on my lips and a song in my heart, I knew I'd make her mine. She's a boss Mac from way back. She's the queen of her game. Known all around the world, my friends, as Miss Doriella Dufontaine. Say, fellas, said D, I'm glad we met. She said, how's about a bite to eat? So we all agreed on some boss feet at Zerkoff's down the street. We had this captain named Abel. He serviced our table. He served real old wine, vintage 1879 from the cathedrals of Spain. And we had escargot and truffles. We had duck all around flambe. We had some hummingbird hearts and other rare parts, mashed potatoes a la king. Then feeling quite willing and able, I leaned across the table and I said, baby, I believe deep spiritual needs drew us together. We blend like the fragrance of flowers blossoming in the gardens of the motherland and like wind swept from the sea, my spirit has sought you out. And all I want you to do is to bathe me in the naked warmth of your knowing smile, sharing the sound of the song in my soul, brown sugar, soul sister, my warm dark rumor of Africa, baby. I think I love you. And that, my son, is rap. W-R-A-P. The L. Abdul Kenyatta has spoken. The Good Professor is a poetical storytelling legend with ten grandchildren and now you know why. And as a public service to those of you without game, we're going to make these teachings available on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was sound designed by Pat Lacidi Miller and produced by Jamie DeWolf. Good news is, we're just getting started. You're listening to Snap Judgment, the sugar and spice episode. Stay tuned. We're going to be right back. A little quality time. Welcome back to Snap Judgment. 
from NPR and PRX. This is the Sugar and Spice episode. And today, we're meeting various people, each with their own type of love story. You start a tale with a good-looking man and a pretty lady. You've got the makings of a love to last forever. But we'll see. Before we got married, my husband had been raised on a ranch in Wyoming, which is where I met him. I had been passing through Wyoming, planning on studying acting in New York, and I met this handsome rancher's son, and I had kind of wanted to catch myself a cowboy just for fun along the way, and he was so calm and grounded, and I thought, wow, I think I'll just stick with this guy who is so predictable. Life would be just so much easier and steady, and so I married him. After my husband and I had been married for about a year and a half, I went to my closet one day and there was a favorite dress of mine, a red dress, and the waist had been torn. I held it up and examined it and and kind of said to myself, oh my gosh, how did this happen? And my husband said quietly, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. And I realized that he had worn the dress and there was just no context for me to put that into. So I just kind of looked at him and and shook my head and threw it in the garbage and didn't think about it for a long time. It did seem really out of his character. None of it seemed to make sense to me. About three years later, another one of my favorite dresses had the waistband ripped out. And this time, when I looked at him and saw him drop his eyes, I was very angry. And I told him I've never, ever wanted to see that happen again, ever. And it didn't show up again for a long time. There was a point after our second child was born that we had a house fire. And in the aftermath of the house fire, because it had been a really big life or death experience for us, My husband, while I was visiting family, he experimented with wearing women's clothing that he had purchased for himself. So that when I came home and he spoke to me about it, it was clear to him how it just seemed to represent who he was. There was something that needed to change. I was completely shocked and I felt confused, a little outraged, mostly terrified because I had no idea what that would mean for our family. I had a new baby, a couple of months old, and we had no home. He had a new job, but even the job is threatened by a change in gender identity. And so I I didn't want him to explore it, but yet at the same time, I loved him with all my heart and really wanted him to be whole and healthy and happy. For about two or three years, he went to psychotherapy, and then he realized that he really needed to be a she. And shortly thereafter, she came up with a new name for herself, which is Seda. That was really, of course, devastating. I was brokenhearted. When he began to explore his concept of womanhood, I grew very angry about appearing as a woman, and I I wanted to shave my head and bind my breasts because I just couldn't imagine that gender could really be important enough to tear apart our family. We were unsure about how long and how our intimate partnership would continue. The romantic love that I had for the man that I married was very strong and very sweet. We had one of the most wonderful marriages I could ever imagine. We've had one conflict over 15 years of marriage. So we decided to take it day by day. He had a full beard, and it was very confusing to sit at the breakfast table and look at him and imagine that beard gone, and then imagine his face looking more feminine. I would look out my kitchen window and see him working in his office, writing in the mornings with women's clothing on, and I would be really drawn to look out and see, oh, is he wearing a skirt? Is he wearing that sweater? Oh, you know, does he look like a woman? How can he think he looks like a woman? And one day I came into the kitchen as he came into the kitchen wearing a skirt and blouse and heels. And I was really shocked at how nice his legs were. <laughs> I thought, my goodness, his legs are, <laughs> are even nicer than mine. <laughs> a little envious. And he was so happy, you know, kind of swished in and got himself a cup of coffee. And I just kind of stood there with my jaw 
dropped to the floor. At that point, I just took a big breath and gave him a hug and said, my gosh, you know, this is hard. I want to be here with you. I want to be here for this, but it's really, really hard. I even took him to get ears pierced and a haircut and eyeglass shopping. So I really supported a lot of that because I really thought that he needed some fashion advice. <laughs> we came to realize gradually that she wasn't the stereotypical female that she initially presented as. She became more similar to the person at core that I had married. The person that she's become is that she does not run from the skill set that she acquired as a man. When we went to do the remodel, of course, she was out there pounding nails and doing the design and all of those pieces. Yeah, it was hugely comforting. So after Seda had been living as a woman for about three months, I looked to her and, and told her, I don't find you attractive anymore in a romantic sense. And we had given it a good try for many months where I had been the heterosexual wife of a handsome man. I was now a gay woman and that wasn't true for me. And, and my name's Seda Collier. I felt like the rottenest person on earth. I married her under false pretenses and we made vows and I could not keep them. When she told me that she would like to separate, there was a lot of acceptance. I think, I think one of the main things I really felt was just acceptance. Regardless of the strategies or the clothing or the jewelry, we always had a sense of being together in a grounded, heartful way as we always had been. Our relationship stayed very close. Even in the most, the depths of despair and in our transition, I think she knew that I really did not want to hurt her. The quality of relationship that we developed when she knew herself better was so much sweeter and deeper than anything we'd ever done. We built an even stronger bond as friends. Now, Seda and I still share a house. In partnership with her in building a home and taking care of a home and parenting our boys. We share a number of clothes back and forth as well as jewelry. In fact, she keeps the lion's share of the jewelry on her side. Seda and I are still legally married because it makes sense to do that with medical insurance and taxes being what they are. The vows that I took with her for marriage, I, I'm keeping up the love and care that I have for her. And I have no doubt that we will care for each other with everything in our power for the rest of our lives. Seda and I have both had other lovers. It's not ideal deal, I guess, but I can't picture anything that would be better. I don't want to lose what I have with her. I had the most wonderful husband that anybody could ever wish for, and I love Seda very, very deeply. She is a soulmate. I have always, for almost 20 years now, have just loved her so much because it's a perfect love. We all have to face what's frightening but we have a choice about whether we're going to open our hearts to it. And considering the alternatives, I wouldn't have gone any other route, even though it hurt. I want to thank Kristen and Seda Collier for sharing their story with Snap. Kristen's working on a book about this whole experience, and you know that story was produced by our own Stephanie Fu. Oh, excuse me. It's okay. Uh, hi. Snap Judgment asks, how did you two meet? Hi, hi. Hello. We met at work in a bar. I went to a friend's party, and lo and behold, he was there. At Yoshi's in Oakland. Well, she was dancing, she didn't really notice me. <laughs> I never thought I would meet a girl this beautiful on the internet. That's so cute! It was, it was a slow burn for me, but uh, it worked. Worked real good. She was, what we say over there, a groupie. I was, <laughs> I was a local legend guitarist, and she was a groupie. When love runs high I just feel like the luckiest girl in the whole world. It was love at first sight. And it's been happiness ever since. <laughs> I love how your eyes close whenever you kiss me. And when I'm away from you, 
Thank you very much, Lindsay Lee Keel and Stephanie Fu. Now, Snappers, I've been wanting to get this next guest on our show for over 50 years. And that's why when I heard he was in the neighborhood, we went to his hotel in the middle of the night, bribed the night watch, duct taped him to the banister and demanded he tell a story to reveal the inner workings of his own heart. Kind of. But thankfully, he was in no position to refuse Reeves. Take it away. I think a lot of couples have pet names for each other. I know they do, right? They range from kind of cute to too cute. But I presume that in most cases, it's one member of the couple giving the pet name to the other one. And to this day, my girlfriend believes that I gave her her pet name when in reality, it was Circumstance and the city of New York. A couple years ago, I was living in New York City and working as a paper engineer, which means I made pop-up books for a living. And I was starting to get serious with my girlfriend. And I was always looking for some kind of grandiose or just romantic gesture I could make. And one day at work, we got this beautiful printing and paper sample. It was a die-cut butterfly, enormous, iridescent, shellac, varnished, shining. It was like a rainbow. It looked just like one of those giant blue electric butterflies you see flitting around the canopy of a Brazilian rainforest. And I liked it, and I, and I took it. And I thought, I'm going to put this somewhere for my girlfriend on her daily commute, right? And she's going to see it. I'll tell her about it, and she'll see it. I'll get points and everything. But you know, think about it. There's no place I could put this thing in New York City where it wouldn't get taken, vandalized, you know, immediately. And a couple days later, I was going from her place to work. I was at the 8th Avenue subway stop. And there is this elevator for disabled access, and it's got glass on all four sides. It kind of looks like a terrarium or a, you know, a a museum display or something, especially when the elevator's not there. It was stuck two floors up and there were signs saying, elevator under repair. So I kind of walked over and I looked in there and I thought, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to create an art installation. I'm going to beautify this urban terrarium. So I took out this beautiful butterfly and I just wedged it between the two elevator doors and tapped it in and it fluttered beautifully and it just landed right there at the bottom, glossy side up, looking perfect. I was pretty pleased with myself. So on the way to work, I composed a little poem. I think it was called something like The Final Elevator Shaft on the L Train. And I emailed it to her. And later on that day, she sent me an email saying, oh, wow, you know, I saw it. It was really cute. How did you do that? And P.S. Te amo too. You know, I love you too, which is weird. She didn't speak Spanish and I hadn't told her I love her. We were sort of in that phase where you don't know and you definitely don't say Um, So later on that night, going over to her place, I went back to the same subway stop, and I go over to the elevator shaft, and there is my butterfly. But one of the construction workers or elevator repairmen, had to be them because it happened on the inside, had taken the butterfly and duct taped it at eye level to the inside of the elevator shaft so that everybody on the platform could see it. And he'd written on it, Te amo smiley. And I realized that guy was doing the same thing I was doing. He found that butterfly, he taped it up there, he wrote a message for his girl, and then he texted her saying, hey, you know, check out the 8th Avenue subway elevator shaft. And my girlfriend not only thought that I was calling her Smiley, she thought that I'd somehow put that up inside this elevator shaft and that I was telling her I love her in Spanish. And when you think about it, it's very helpful because there should be an intermediate phrase in between I like you and I love you because we were certainly in an intermediate phase between I like you and I love you. You know, I nominate Te Amo Smiley. Reeves is a storytelling, poetry slamming, Ted speaking renaissance man, and we look forward to having him back on the show. We'll have a link on the site so that you, too, can dive into the world of Reeves on our website, snapjudgment.org. The piece was produced by Jamie DeWolf with sound design by Renzo Gorio. 
coming up after the break, two stories I just know you're going to be talking about for weeks for vastly different reasons. You see, love is a many splendid thing, Snappers. Don't go away. Snap Judgment, the sugar and spice episode, will be right back. Snap Judgment. Today on the show, we're exploring the magic that draws people together. And this magic, it works in very, very different ways on very, very different people. I am Vicki Darger. And my name is Valerie Darger. We are twin sisters. Twins Vicki and Valerie Darger grew up in a little house on a suburban street. Yeah, our home was just a typical suburban neighborhood home, Mom. Just a couple of steps to the neighbor's place. Except they were a little different from the neighbors. We were the only polygamists that lived in that neighborhood. Our mother was the second wife in a family of three wives, so they live in what we call plural marriage. So it was just Vicky and Val, their three mothers, their father, and they had some brothers and sisters, too. My mother had 16 children. Our father had 40 children. Still, Vicky and Val were twins. They had a special connection. I did always feel like we did understand each other on a certain level that other people may not have. I would understand a look of hers, or um, she would understand why I did something in a way that other people did not understand that at all. As they went through school together, they learned to navigate the complications that inevitably faced the children of plural marriage. About maybe second or third grade, you kind of learn to keep quiet about it. So you realize that you're different than them. And so we we had to um, watch and be careful about what friends we might invite over. Somehow we felt like we had to apologize for something that we didn't feel was bad or wrong. I love my family. I love my parents, all my moms, you know, my siblings. Some of their brothers and sisters chose plural marriages as adults, and some did not. For Vicky, she always knew what she wanted. From a young child, um, the principle of plural marriage always resonated with me. I always thought it was something that I would do. She first started to fall for Joe, the man who would become her husband, when she was only 11. One of the things that we did were uh, roller skating parties. They were kind of popular at the time. And that's when I first noticed him and got my little schoolgirl crush on him. I don't don't think he noticed me at all, but that's when it started for me. And I never, he was never far from the back of my mind, but it wasn't until I was in high school that I actually got to know him and fell in love with him. Joe and Vicky went to homecoming together, and eventually, he asked for her hand in marriage. Along with another young woman he had also been courting, and the three of them got married in a small ceremony in their home. It was pretty blissful for me at the time. I was just so excited to start a family and wanted to have many children. But for Val, her journey in love was less blissful. She wed early and had five children, but after many years of struggling through a rocky marriage, she packed up her kids and left. One of the first places she landed was at Vicky's home for some comfort. To just get away from all of it and to get my head clear and everything. We had spent the day talking and 
eating and sort of in the evening we were just sitting in their playroom at their house with just the little children playing around us and we were still chatting about things and and she was surprisingly warm and supportive and then Joe walked in. I was sitting on the floor with, I had a a little toddler. I just looked up at him. I just could feel this almost like energy that sort of just bounced back and forth between us. And, you know, after a minute I looked away because I just, I didn't understand what it meant. But Val wasn't the only one who felt it. So did her sister. I remember uh, we were talking and the moment that Joe walked in and he just smiled and said hello to everyone like he usually does and came and kissed the children. I actually felt a little bit of a jolt, too. Remember, Vicky always knew what certain looks from her sister meant. And she knew exactly what this was. So she approached her husband with an idea. Court my twin sister, Val. See what happens. I went to him and I just told him that I felt really strongly that she was going to become a member of our family. And um, I, of course, didn't want to put any pressure on it. Everybody has to come to their own answers on things like that. Joe decided to search for his own answer. He had felt the jolt, too. So he approached Val. He bluntly asked me if I had felt anything um, at that time in the playroom. (laughs) And I said, I honestly, I don't know what it means. So Joe and Val spent more time together and a lot of hours talking about their past and their future. We were having a conversation about some of the hard things about my previous marriage. I just uncontrollably started to cry and a healing cry, you know, it just like felt like somebody had, had listened to me and understood. That's just the point, I think, that I just fell in love with him, that it just happened that at that moment we kissed. <laughs> And so, to me, I feel like the kiss was the question and the answer all at once, even though right afterwards it was spoken, but it was just like, that's what we, that's how we knew. Joe went to break the news to his other wives, but Vicky had known since that moment in the playroom that her sister would someday soon become her sister-wife. I wasn't surprised at all when Joe came home and told us the news that they had decided to get married. It was like I almost expected it. It was all she wanted for her twin. And I felt like I had had things so good. I just really wanted her to have what I had and to experience the beauty of a good relationship like I had. I always joke because she was like born before me. She was, she's always been just an inch taller than me. She had more hair when we were born than I did. (laughs) So I always joke that she just took the best of everything. (laughs) But then what'd she do? She turned around and shared it all with me, so... There, there actually has been a study about the polygamous cultures, and, and it is very common for sisters to marry. They have been raised the same. They have the same values. They know that they can get along. There's a bond. There's a connection. I know that they're, they're my family, and there's a certain understanding. They make me feel a little bit less alone in the big world. And then with a twin sister, that's even stronger. Not to be mistaken, I mean, our personalities aren't so alike. We are very different, and, you know, our husband can attest to that, you know. We think it's the ultimate love story. It does expand on what the typical idea of love and relationships are. It kind of challenges it, but it, it doesn't necessarily have to, because love is limitless. It, there's no, it, you, don't, you can't contain it in a box. Big thanks to Vicki and Valerie Darger for sharing their story with the SNAP. Find out more about their lives on our website, snapjudgment.org. That story was produced by Anna Sussman. When you think of falling in love, you don't really think of falling literally. But our next guest, Natalie Illum, she brings a whole new perspective to courtship. When you're born two and a half months early and weigh less than two pounds, chances are you will end up in a school like mine, if you are lucky. I went to United Cerebral Palsy for preschool. That's what I have, cerebral palsy. I was lucky I had teachers who taught me more than how to spell Wednesday and tell time. They also taught me how to fall. 
I remember crash mats and physical therapists who taught me how to protect my face and ribs. By first grade, I mastered how to scan a floor, to look down and ahead for anything that could trip you up. At home, it was the loose grout on the kitchen floor. During school hours, I focused on avoiding stray pieces of paper. Not being able to walk without crutches is definitely challenging. One second you're headed for art class, and the next there's a group of people frantically asking you if you need the nurse and grabbing at your backpack to help you up. My worst foes are always wet leaves, and this is strange, but it usually rains on my first date. I should take this as a sign and just cancel. But I always think I can simultaneously trick gravity while appearing charming. Do you remember the first person you fell for? The one you knew you could easily love forever. Like if he or she leaves you, you are absolutely going to die. His name was Sean. He was a genius. Seriously. We were going to see the movie Original Sin. How could a first date possibly end badly if you're going to see Angelina Jolie? It can if you never make it to the car. I remember the exact moment when my left crutch started to slide. He was saying something about teaching me how to play chess later. I was already thinking of a plan B that didn't involve a game board. And then I went down. My jeans were muddy and both of my palms were scraped. Since Sean had the build of a mathematician, someone else who saw the fall had to help me get up instead. There was no second date. This guy Matt used to come to the open mic nights for literary magazine I edited. Matt came up to me and said something like, your poems are really cool. This was reason enough for a first date. A month or two later, I'm trying to do the striptease because I really, really like Matt. You'd think I'd remember about the sleeve cuffs, how the armholes are way too narrow unless you unbutton it before taking it off. I remember trying to pull at it to get the button to break, the shirt to rip, anything but what happened next. I lost my balance, and before Matt had time to catch me... I'd split my lip on the edge of the bed. I knew this was the type of date that would end in an emergency room visit. I broke things off with Matt first because I didn't want to have an awkward conversation with him when I got my stitches out. But there was one man who has been able to show me that leaves aren't always evil. His name was Peter. He's Irish. He always got away with a lot just due to that accent. When I first start dating someone, I tend to make the disability the third person in our relationship, talking about it all the time, trying to make it seem sexy. All Peter said by our third date was, are you done now? Your disability has nothing on my issues. It was fall, a gorgeous but deceptive season for people with crutches. He had steps leading up to his front door. One day before I got there, he had swept the front porch. This was the best sign I had so far for our future. When I left later that night, he cursed the fact that it was raining and more leaves had fallen in his absence and then tried to move them with his feet. I started to slip, the kind where I lose both crutch and my foot at the same time. It's the kind of fall where gravity wins. Peter had enough reaction time to grab my waist and hold me tight enough to counter my lack of balance, like he meant to hug me. And then he does hug me, and we don't care about the crutches or the fact that it's raining. I keep replaying that moment. It's the first time I would have been able to fall, and it wouldn't have even mattered. Natalie E. Illum is a founding board member of Mother Tongue, 
She performs for the Story League and Speakeasy DC. And for more information, we're going to have a link to natalieillum.net on our website, snapjudgment.org. Her story was produced by Jamie DeWolf and Anna Sussman. It is the end of Snap Judgment, but the beginning of love. We're always here to help you close the deal, and that is right. Give someone special a little snap, and they'll love you forever. And for real, if they don't dig on Snap, they are not the right person for you. Full episodes, movies, pictures available on our website for you. Facebook, we're on the Facebook Snap Judgment. Twitter, Snap Judgment ORG. Snap Judgment was produced by myself and the sexiest crew in all of public radio. That's right, Prairie Home. I'm talking to you. Swoon before the Uber producer, Mr. Mark Ristich. Stephanie Real Love Food. Anna Big Love Sussman. Jamie DeWolf is engaged. Pat Masidi Miller writes love letters. Rita Daniels minds her business. Renzo Gorio can do the robot. Will, America's most wanted Urbina, and Lindsay Lee Keel, the most wanted American. Now, you remember Putt Putt Golf? Everybody likes Putt Putt Golf, but you can't go alone. So the next time you want to hit that ball around, Give the Corporation for Public Broadcasting a call. I know they're not busy. Put on a clean shirt. Stay out as late as you want. But many thanks to the CPB and PRX. Putting the public in public media because they're in love with the public and kind of in like with the media. PRX.org. And while this is not the news, to say the news, in fact, you could travel back in time meet the perfect person for you, but discover the space-time distortion only works for 72 hours and unless you leave your true love forever, the universe will collapse and you can jump into the portal only to discover your true love was a time traveler as well and actually lives in the same building two floors up. Yes! All of that could happen, Snappers, and you would still not be as far away from the news as this is, but this is in PR.